0: Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Hey howdy! Hey my brewing brothers and sisters, Greetings, cretins! Uh, all right, back in the studio, <laughs> our our prospective studios, John in Tasmania, uh, <laughs> me uh, in Heretic, and uh, yeah, we're, we're ready to have fun yet again. Uh, how you been doing, John?
2: I've been doing well. Um, I've I'm fo- now fully vaccinated. Two weeks have gone by. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we got the rabies vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah. The uh, uh, what are they? No, that's not. Forgotten the scientific term for rabies, but immaterial material. Um, yeah, things have been going great. Weather's been good. Um, bear problems are minimal with the garbage cans. So yeah, can't complain.
0: There you go. As long as your bear problems are minimal, I think life is going well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, someone else that has minimal bear problems.
0: Our good friend, John Blickman.
2: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Not many, not many bears in Indiana. Um, There aren't? No, not really. I mean, what few there are, they're regularly shot. So, (laughs) at least around John's place.
0: How many bears has John shot?
2: I'm not sure. I'll, we'll have to get more more recent numbers from it. We
0: we will have to get up-to-date numbers on this. Yeah. Uh the the fans want to know. But the other thing the fans want to know is uh, Blickman Engineering, blickmanengineering.com or blickman.com. It's blickmanengineering.com. Right. Uh, anvil.com. Uh, anvil.com. They uh, they make some wonderful uh, brewing equipment for for everything from uh, home brewers. Uh, just starting out to uh, professional-level equipment. Uh, if you are uh, looking to uh, start your, your pro brewery or just up your game as a home brewer, uh, Blick, check out Blickman Engineering. Uh, they got some great stuff. Great people, very clever, very innovative. Uh, I, I would say of all the equipment manufacturers in the world, Blickman Engineering has had the, the biggest effect on the, just the way of thinking uh and changing uh you know uh, perceptions of, of of the brewing brewing equipment so uh check them out good people they pay for the show so you don't have to you could send a, a nice note to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. tell John how much you appreciate that he's paid for the show that you listen to for free today welcome our, our fine guest uh, F- Mr. foul Allen from uh, Anderson Valley Brewing Company. Uh, Fowl is a, a longtime uh, industry uh, person who uh, has been brewing uh, all over the world uh, for one, and author of uh, some uh, some fine books and articles, and just an all around really wonderful person. And uh, it's good to good to see you, Fowl.
3: It's good to see you guys. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the next uh, hour or so.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, you know what we wanted to talk about today. You know, Anderson Valley, uh, especially since you you've come back, has really uh, been known for some great uh, kettle-based sours. Some uh, the, your your Goza line, for example. So, uh, you know, how did you guys uh, start uh, going down that road? I mean, what 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 happened? What what drove you that way?
3: You know, it was very serendipitous. Um, We had a lab guy, a guy named Andy Hooper, who uh, is now head brewer at uh, Seismic Brewing uh, in Santa Rosa. You'll pour one of these while we talk. Nice. And uh, Andy came to me one day and he said, hey, I want to do like a sour mash beer, like, you know, they do for whiskey. And I'd tried that once before with horrible results. And uh, I said... Sure, knock yourself out, Andy. Let's see what we can do. And so we, you know, he decided he wanted to do an eight barrel batch. Uh, that's our kind of our, our medium-sized pilot system. And we brewed an eight barrel batch and it took a couple days to get it to sour. And uh, at the end of those days, it had an interesting kind of Foot Locker meets gym sock kind of aroma. And uh, I was like, well, let's go ahead and boil it and see where, you know, that ends up. And it didn't get any better. And we fermented it, and it didn't get any better. And we ultimately dumped it, mm-hmm. which, as you know, as brewers, we don't like to dump beer.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it's got to be pretty bad before I'm like, well, we're just going gonna to feed it to the cows. <laughs> uh, usually, you can find something to do with it, even if it's, mm-hmm. you know, give it to your friends you don't like. Uh, <laughs> after that, I said like, Andy. what do you think went wrong? And Andy's a really smart guy, and he said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And I thought, if Andy's gonna find out, I better do some research, I better do some reading and be able to you know, intelligently discuss this with him. So about a week later, we came back and talked it out and uh, came up with some ideas of how we might mitigate that and what, what had caused that kind of that you know cheesy foot aroma. And uh, we can actually, it's a pretty similar conclusions and as we were sitting around talking about it over a few beers, my next door neighbor, who's a home brewer and used to be a professional brewer, a guy named Mike Luperello comes up and he, he's listening and he says, that sounds like an awesome way to make a Goza. And both Andy and I looked at him and said, what? What are you <laughs> talking about? He said, Goza, have you never heard of Goza? It's a German sour beer style. And I said, shut up, shut up. Who, Germans don't make sour beer. Little did I know, so both Andy and Owen did more research and we came back and we agreed that that, that might be a good style to, to try this new kind of process we've talked about. So we brewed another batch, uh, and this time we brewed it with the intention of making a goza. Uh, we used a little salt, a little coriander, and we made a pretty interesting beer. And I thought, you know, it was, it was this is our original, the, the holy goza. And I thought, wow, this is fun. You know, who knew? Uh, and turns out actually more people than, than just Mike Luperello knew about this beer. Uh, but most people didn't. It was not a well-known style. I think the only people that I know that was, was doing it before we were uh, is Westbrook, although I'm sure there were others, but nobody was really making a lot of it. And I thought fun style, no one's going to drink this except me and Andy and Mike Luparello and maybe a couple other people. And that would be that, we'd never brew it again. But the then owner thought it had some legs. You know, he thought this is gonna go somewhere. And I thought, you stupid. (laughs) But he was right. Uh, We started making it and quickly went from our eight barrel system to a much larger system, a hundred barrel system. And we started making Goza and people started buying it. Mm-hmm. And after about a year, we decided that, you know, it was common. mean, I'd done a bunch of research at that point, And uh, it was common for people to add uh, flavorings to the Goza like they did with Berliner Weiss. Mm-hmm. Um, the flavorings were actually, you know, Berliner Weiss often was Woodruff. And there, were, there weren't very many flavorings that they'd use. But Goza, it turns out, they, they did all kinds of, you know, things. Um, at the point of dispense. And I thought, well, we're not gonna be able to control that. We're not gonna be able to send Woodruff syrup out with a keg of Goza. So why don't we try putting fruit in there beforehand and see how people like that. And so we tried blood orange first. We have now tried pretty much every fruit on the planet that I can, I can get in any sort of quantity. Um, and I think there are a few more that we'll come out with one day in the future, but really the best ones were the blood orange is by far. Uh, everybody's favorite and I think the next one that we came out with was the melon the watermelon Mm -hmm. and that is just you know it's a it's a natural flavor pairing and very popular for us and then uh, the owner at the time he wanted to make a a a rosé kind of wine based drink and so we we tried that and we tried I don't know, five or six iterations of that. And none of them were very good. And one of our brewers, Peter, came up and said, I can do this. And after, you know, having tried it a bunch of times, we we're like, all right, go ahead. See what you can do. Show us. And he got uh, raspberries and uh, rose hips and was able to make a beer that I think, you know, it has this kind of awesome raspberry aroma and a little bit of flavor. And then it really does have kind of this Uh, A rosé wine character to it. So that's another one that we do a lot of. Mm -hmm. Nice. Were your initial rosé trials with grapes? Yeah, we initially tried with grapes um, and we've made some good uh, wild ferment grape beer combos. Uh, There are a lot of wineries in the Valley Valley here where we are, uh, 40 something. And we've collaborated with a couple of them where they bring must in and we would make a beer to go you know, uh, what they do is they get a bin, they let it go. Uh, sometimes they pitchy, sometimes they wouldn't, depending on what what winery, they would then press it. And some some wines get pressed lightly. So there's a lot of must still in there. So they'd bring those bins to us, we'd run beer on top of that, and then let it go for about another week. That's a whole kind of different beer process. You know, you're dealing with a lot of different bacteria and So we didn't want to do that process. We wanted to use the kettle souring process. And I think, you know, for the listeners, it's really important to understand that kettle souring is not like barrel souring. They're two completely different animals. And there's things that are in between that, you know, that you can do. But really, you know, when people say, oh, you know, kettle souring is cheating. Well, you know, if you're going to make a barrel-aged sour beer and you start with a kettle sour beer, that's cheating.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
3: you know, there's such different processes and they bring about, you know, different flavor profiles. Right. They're not really the same thing. So it's not really cheating unless, of course, you're trying to pass it off as a barrel-aged beer, which is
0: Right. I, I think the, the general consumer is not really... F- or I'll say a lot of people are not familiar with the difference between barrel aged and kettle sours. And so they think it's the same thing yet. There's Just you know, this wild price difference between the two. And, you know, uh, so I think that that may be part of people's, you know, concern there, but I, I agree with you. I think the only cheating is either adding lactic acid uh, pouring that into a beer and calling that a sour—I've seen that before, and that's disgusting. And like you're saying, you, you take a kettle sour and then you put it in the barrel and call it a barrel-aged sour. It's like, well, I guess you could call it a barrel-aged kettle sour. You know, kind of a new combination of things, techniques. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen that too. And that, 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 as long as you're clear as to what you're, you're uh, you know, providing the consumer. I think, I think that's fine. Well, and that, that brings me to, uh, one of many questions, which is, uh, so you're, you're uh, the, the way that we do kettle sours now is, I mean, we did the, the, <laughs> uh, inoculated with mash, sour mash and drain it off and all that and trying to blanket it with argon and all that. And you, you know, you get some funk, Uh, which in the right amount of funk is is fine. But um, what we do now is we do a regular mash. We, you know, uh, uh, move the the wort to the kettle and we um, give it a quick boil uh, to kill off any uh, bacteria that's in there. And then we'll run it through the heat exchanger back into the kettle to drop the temperature down to around 100 Fahrenheit. And then we will pitch a uh, culture of lactobacillus into the, uh, into the um, uh, wort, and we'll leave it for 24 hours, and when we come back, it's pretty much down around 3.2 uh, pH, and then we'll give it a, a boil again, and if we want to add any hops or anything else, we could do that at that time, and we transfer it over to a fermenter, uh, and we pitch our regular yeast, our 001, or whatever we're going to do, and ferment it out. Add any fruit, carbonate package, and that's pretty much the whole process. Is that is that essentially what you guys are doing, or are you invented some other way of doing this? We
3: we don't invented sounds so like mm, planned. Um, <laughs> now, mind you, I outline all the methods of doing it that I know of in this book here. Uh, happens to be a great book. Everyone should own it.
0: Yeah, where's my Goza book? What do you do with it? In
3: fact, anybody who mails me a $20 check, I'll sign a copy and send <laughs> it to them. Uh,
0: my copy is time. not signed, Fal.
3: I will sign it for you. Same. Um, yeah. Uh, but So we have come up with kind of a different way. Um, your, the way you're doing it is probably the most common way that I, of brewers mm-hmm. that I've talked to. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're, you know, brewers are inventive folks, particularly older brewers who had to start off with uh, equipment that may not have been meant for brewing beer uh, or home brewers. You know, they they are used to making their own equipment or finding out ways to do things. So some of the younger brewers have, you know, come to work and there's nice shiny equipment there already. Uh, Us older folks, we, you know, found dairy equipment or, uh, you know, made our own kettles out of kegs or whatever. But we came up with a method where we high gravity brew. Mm -hmm. So we'll do like you do, we'll do a regular mash and we'll do regular runoff and the beer will then be higher than the gravity we hope to achieve. And we will then use house water to cool the beer down as well as bring the gravity down to where it should be. And we'll add the lactic acid bacteria then. And we put in a big pitch, um, Mm quite a bit of lactic acid bacteria. We want to sour in less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And that's important for a couple reasons. Um, but one of them is that I'll, a lot of times these, the quicker you drop the pH, uh, the sooner the pH gets below. And I don't remember the numbers exactly, but in the book, uh, the sooner the, the pH gets down far enough, those, those gym sock uh, aroma producing bacteria are unable to grow. Mm-hmm. So, Quickly dropping the pH is important. We also blanket the top of the kettle there uh, with with argon Mm -hmm. and that helps uh, to exclude some of the oxygen. Those, Those bacteria that make that aroma require oxygen and they require a higher pH. So a big pitch helps you reduce the pH quickly. The argon, I'm not really sure it does a whole lot, but makes us feel better. And uh, I think it excludes some oxygen. And then the rest of the process is just like yours. You know, once we hit our target pH, which is usually in about 12 to 18 hours, uh, then we boil, add whatever hops we're going to add. Uh, we then cool it, ferment it. And we add the salt at the very end uh, mm-hmm. for a couple reasons. One, we are that, that yeast is already burnt from mm-hmm. the, the sour, mm-hmm. so we can't ever repitch it. I mean, we've tried, it does make beer, just didn't make good beer. But we're, we're worried that the salt will even further uh, wow. damage and actually be a problem during the fermentation. Sure. So we add it after it's fermented. We add it, if there's a fruit addition, we add it with the fruit mm-hmm. and we add the fruit and the salt on the very last day of fermentation. And what we find is that the yeast absorb that sugar, even if they're not actively fermenting and producing CO2, they -hmm. absorb the sugar from the fruit, take it Mm -hmm. on board. So you actually see a rise in the the gravity and then it actually drops and usually below where you added it. So Mm -hmm. there's very little sugar left in there, ending up with a nice dry beer, salt doesn't affect the, uh, the yeast. And also salt and stainless, probably never really a good idea. And salt and stainless in a low pH is even worse Mm. And salt in uh, low pH stainless when it's hot. So if you're putting the salt in the kettle and then running it through your heat exchanger, mm. I think that's going to be some problems. Maybe not in the first year or two, but probably down the line, you're going to find pitting in your heat exchanger. So we mm. try and minimize our, our contact time and, and, and the parameters for that, that salt addition. That's a very good point.
0: All right. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more with Val Allen about Goza right after this.
1: Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong.
0: All right, we're back. We're talking with Pal Allen, uh, author of uh, Goza, uh, a fine, fine book, uh, brewmaster at Anderson Valley Brewing Company, uh, uh, purveyors of fine uh, Goza. And uh, we're talking about uh, the the, the process that you use. And um, one of the things that uh, has come up recently is... um, using a gmo yeast for souring. Um I think uh, it's what lalamand? Mm-hmm. and they sour, have, sour uh, vesa. Right. Mm. Sour vicia. That's it. Uh and so it's a gmo yeast where they've uh put a, a, a lactate, uh lactate gene from uh some food uh microorganism which, uh, so it, it sours as you, uh, ferment. So you don't, you don't kettle sour it. You just, uh, um, you know, pitch this as your yeast and it produces lactic acid and there's no bacteria to worry about. And and you're all done. I've heard of uh, a number of brewers doing this. And the thing that stopped me is, um, you know, personally, GMO doesn't bother me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm old. What what difference is it going to make? Uh, and most of these things, I think, are fine. Um, but you know, I'm concerned about uh, you know our, our, you know our our consumers uh, being uh, upset with it or you know having an issue with it. And I think if you're going to use something like that, you better disclose it to people that that's what you're using. And uh, I think a lot of people aren't. I know hmm. people are just using it and not, not saying anything. Uh, what's your feeling on that?
3: Well, I, again, you know, for folks that are, you know, less experienced brewers or non-brewers, uh, the reason that brewers like kettle souring. Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but one of them is it's fast, but it's also safe. So mm-hmm. when you work in the brew house and you add that bacteria, which you don't want in your cellar, lactic acid bacteria is the bane of the brewer's existence. Uh, you know All the beer spoilers that you really don't want are usually lactic acid bacteria of some sort, Pediococcus being the, one of the worst. But we use a lactobacillus in, in the brew house and when you boil it, that stuff is dead. You have killed it. And when you send it through your heat exchanger and over into your brew house, you can be relatively confident that you're not gonna have any contamination. I would worry about a yeast strain that produces lactic acid. You probably, if you do things right, aren't gonna see any cross-contamination. But you now have you know, a acid producing yeast that could get cross-contaminated into your other batches. Mm-hmm. That happens quite frequently in breweries. And you're putting it down your drain, and you're getting it on your floor, and it's being tracked around everywhere. So in our brewery, we, we spend some time trying not to cross-contaminate things. So I would be a little bit worried about that myself. Uh, anytime we bring in another yeast strain into the brewery, uh, all the brewers are a little, a little more cautious, a little more worried about cross-contamination. So. That's my only real thought about right.
0: that. Yeah, yet another reason to uh, be be careful about something like that. Yeah, um, I, I don't know, uh, you know, how I feel about it. I, I just think, you know, and every brewer should do what what they think is right. But for me, it's like ah, I, I'd have to tell people, you know, not uh, I'd be fine with it, but. You know, I, I just worry about, uh, you know, things like that. People are worried about uh, nickel in uh, wheat and oats. So people are asking me about what beers of ours have, have wheat and oats because wheat and oats are uh, high, high nickel content uh, grains, apparently. <laughs> There's some, some foods that have higher levels of nickel than other foods. Still and parts per million. right i I, but they're saying that there are people with severe nickel allergies that have to be careful about the foods they eat Uh, which you know at first i was like oh please and then a little bit of research i'm like okay i i i can see how that could be a possibility um so you know it's just little things like that we're, we're we're finding out and i don't know me i eat anything i if, 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 if I have problems with it, well, that's just the way it is. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you just got to be really careful about that sort of thing uh, today. Yeah,
3: I, uh, I agree that a lot of people write to us about the GMO thing. So that would definitely be a concern about using that yeast. And, you know, I, I'm sure you guys are the same way. When you choose a yeast, you look very carefully at the flavor components it's going to make. Mm-hmm. and the behavior of it it's flocculation the attenuation all those different things so i don't know about this souring yeast but we really like our house yeast and the flavors it makes mm-hmm. so i'd be reticent to to you know Changing try it. a new yeast that i was unfamiliar with and maybe not like the flavors it produced right maybe maybe not
0: so Val, when you're doing your souring step you said 12 to 18 hours what sort of temperature are you using there? Uh, and how important is temperature into that souring process?
3: Temperature is pretty important. Um, we've fiddled around with that a little bit in the beginning, but, uh, sub 100 F, uh, took a longer time, didn't get as good results and getting above about one fifteen seems to have similar issues. Um, you actually kill off some of the yeast, at, uh, the bacteria at that point. So, we try and keep it in between 100 and 110, you know, in the upper range there, 108, somewhere in there. So, mm-hmm. it happens quickly, um, but it's not so hot that it's going to damage the bacteria. Also, the warmer it is, the less time it's going to take you then to bring it up to a boil. And the warmer it is, also, the less you have to worry about losing. Uh, you know, you got a big thermal mass, but you are going to lose some temperature over those 12 mm-hmm. to 24 hours. So if you go in at 110 and, you know, by the time you're done, it's 100, that's not a problem. But if you go in at 100, and by the time you're done, it's in the high 80s. That could be an issue.
2: I want to ask you, Fal, about your temperature control. Uh, You say that you use house water to bring the wort down to this pitching temperature of 108. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you also
3: utilize your heat exchanger in that process? No, no, we, you know, the brewers have to kind of make, you know, a rule of thumb kind of calculation during winter and during summer as to how much, you know, temperature they're going to, they're going to lose there. But, By and large, they've they've gotten pretty good at it. Uh, So they, you know, add the water and that water mixes pretty good in there. And uh, if they have to, they can turn the kettle on and reheat some, but really they're shooting for the gravity more than the temperature. So we get to our correct gravity and then we take a temperature reading. And if that's right, then we, you know, we move forward with pitching. If it's off, we can heat up or cool down a little bit. And again, as I said, if it's a little too high, we're not really concerned. So, you know, if they get to the gravity and it were at 112, we're not so worried about it. Uh, if they were up in the 120s, I'd be more worried about it. So, but they're really shooting for a gravity drop. And our groundwater is fairly consistent. So that comes out to be a fairly consistent temperature.
0: Okay. Jamil, do you use your heat exchanger or no? Yeah, we do. So what we do is... Uh, Essentially, you know shoot for the the gravity we're looking for, and then uh, we just uh, send it through the heat exchanger and then back into the kettle, so um, we can kind of dial it in that way and two we, ways to skin the cat yeah,
3: there are many ways um I talked to brewers and i I was really surprised at the innovation you know some people really have come up with some unique ways, unique unusual ways um, and you know another thing. The reason that we don't run it through the heat exchanger. Two reasons. Two main reasons. One, we're lazy. Uh, we don't have to CIP the heat exchanger again. And two, I like a little of the funk. And if if you get a quick souring, you know uh, a quick drop of that pH, and you can do it in, in a in a good manner, you get a tiny little bit of funk that way. That is a little easier to control. But as Jamil said, if, you know if you're doing more than 24 hours of souring, then the potential for getting funk gets, you know, it grows exponentially. So you don't want to do that process and then wait three days. Like I know some brewers that do and they make good beer, but it's a little funky.
0: <laughs> and then, so you mentioned uh, using a, a lactobacillus. Uh, we use uh, plantarum, which we've we found the the best results with. Um, do you have a specific strain that you, uh, you prefer?
3: We use Mm -hmm. Delbrookie, depending Mm -hmm. on, and we experimented with some. And I think that, uh, if you're making a more nuanced Goza, uh, like one with no fruit and you, you know, it's not a big beer, and you wanna go for some of those flavors, I think the difference in the lactic acid you use can uh, give you different flavor uh, components. Mm-hmm. But if you're making a giant gozo or a goza, that's filled with fruit, I think those differences are gonna be pretty much you know, covered by the rest of the process. And at that point, you're just looking for which one works best for you. Sour is the quickest, uh, is most available, is cheapest in your area. So, I mean, that, I think there are, reasons to try different ones depending on the kind of beer you make but if you're just making a giant fruit bomb anything any any of those should work good for you i
0: i will i will tell you a story about uh i did a collaboration brew with fullers of london Mm. and uh so (laughs) Uh, the the beer we're gonna do was just like all right so we're not just gonna do ipa or you know a bitter or something like that or porter we're gonna do a goza and we decided to do a blackberry goza yeah. at, at fuller's a kettle sour at fuller's <laughs> and um uh, i went there and and they you know part of it was uh uh, the The culture to to add, and they looked at like buying you know plantarum and it was going to be like you know ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars <laughs> because it 's two hundred and fifty barrels um, like two hundred fifty u k barrels i think of of volume that we were going to do and um, so they they went and got a a uh, plantarum uh, supplement at one of the local shops and grew it up from a, from a capsule in their lab. They grew it up into like 20 of these, uh, you know, corny kegs. And so uh, we, we had to figure out a way to cool down 250 barrels of, or you know, 200 barrels of, uh, of wort uh, down to uh, the, the, you know, souring temperature. And that was an adventure. Uh, but we, we rerouted pipes and we got that work and got that done. And then we, we, you know, we had to change the software because the soft, the, the German software that they had was set up for the way they brew and batch numbers. And, and you can't take something out of a kettle and put it back into a kettle. Uh, cause that's a no, no, the, the numbering doesn't work that way. It doesn't know that it lives in the kettle. And then we pitched the, uh, the, the, the corny kegs of, of uh, bacteria, and it all turned out great. And I know there were people there that were totally freaked out about the fact that we were dumping bacteria into the brewery. <laughs> but we did it, and nothing happened.
3: Well, I have to admit, I'm jealous that you got to brew at Fuller's.
0: <laughs> right, so right. A treat. Oh, I got a whole story about me being in the in the brewer booth when when tourists came by and were like taking pictures of me as the the brewer there (laughs) at Fuller's. It was experience of a lifetime. I I really got to uh you know uh thank those guys for that. (laughs) And it was a goza. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't enough blackberry. I knew it wasn't going to be enough blackberry. Yeah. Just, you know, one of those things. But well, anyways, uh, so you know, they were able to grow it up from a uh, you know nutritional supplement that they that they found. They're like, yeah, it cost us five pounds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so that's one way. And I run across brewers in the past who have thrown in yogurt and used yogurt uh you know that i'm not sure about that what what, what's your thoughts on using you know yogurt
3: now you know i don't want to disparage any breweries who may be doing this um i have had beers kettle sour beers made with yogurt that i liked quite a bit so Mm -hmm. it is a doable thing um we didn't want to go with yogurt for a couple reasons one um, and I do know a lot of brewers that, that use plantarum. In fact, most of the brewers I think use plantarum and they grow them up from supplements, um, mm-hmm. good bellies or any number of ones out there. And I think that's a, a much better way than yogurt. Yogurt, you got a few issues. One, you're putting milk right. into your beer and uh-huh. that can have downstream issues. And honestly, as you were talking about earlier, you should be telling your consumers that this beer has lactose mm-hmm. in it. Because mm-hmm. if you're lactose intolerant, like dramatically lactose intolerant, that, that could be a problem for you. So there's mm-hmm. that. There's a labeling issue. Um, secondly, you never know what's in yogurt. You know, mm-hmm. even if you go to the producer and they tell you what's in it, they may change their, their type of lactic acid bacteria at any given time for any reason, and your beer may end up tasting differently. So mm-hmm. you have less control over it that way. And they may also be using multiple kinds at any given time. So you might end up with different, you know, proportional amounts. Um, I, I, you know, I, I get it. It's cheap, but with a little extra effort, it can be just as cheap to buy a supplement and grow it up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I The beers have tasted like that. They do kind of have a bit of a, you know, yogurty kind of character. It, it You know, it has that same sour culture (laughs) as yogurts and you know uh, like Fowl's saying, i think uh, a lot of times they use multiple a blend of cultures in yogurt to ensure that they get uh you know quite the rapid uh you know souring as well so yeah Uh, question
2: yeah how do you go about growing up a culture from a supplement
3: I've never done it from a supplement, but we get a pitch from White Labs. We use their bacteria. And I assume it's the same kind of way. You just get some uh, reasonably uh, mid-ranged wort, and we pitch the bacteria in that at a good temperature. We have a little fermenter that we do it in. And, you know, you grow it up in there. You just keep it warm and uh, if you need to keep it agitated, although back with bacteria, that's less of an issue because it's so light um, and it'll, you know, double, I don't know how many dozens of times.
2: Do you have any kind of, uh, of N number that you're looking for in terms of growth? Um, you know, how do you, how do you quantify this? How would a, how would a, another brewery or a home brewer quantify how much growth is necessary?
3: Well, you know, uh, I it depends on. The bacteria you're using. We go by the same rule of thumb as, back, uh, as yeast, so it's one million cells per milliliter, you know, per degree Play-Doh, and we go a little high on that end, so it may be slightly more than that. That's kind of the number we're looking for that we want to pitch in, and again, we're looking for really rapid uh, pH drop. Um, we're a production brewery, and we need to be able to get through those things in and out of the brew house, and certainly within 24 hours. I think if you have more time, you could try different methods or maybe pitch less. But if you're going to grow your bacteria up, you might as well go for a big number and a big pitch and just get things done quicker. Makes sense. Yeah.
0: Well, I think temperature plays a big role in it, too. Uh, the, the times when, uh, you know, friends of mine have had trouble, I asked them, you know, they're like, "Yeah, it's taking a long time. You know, they started around 100 degrees. You know, just a little bit lower than I would have started. And they're like, well, you know, I'm worried because I was told, you know, it doesn't work over, you know, 105 or 100 or, you know, works best at 90 something. And I'm not really sure that's true. Maybe it works best at 90 something, but. Uh, you just get far more rapid growth and far more rapid uh, souring at a a higher temperature. You know, another, another 10 degrees Fahrenheit I think makes all the difference in the world. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more questions for Pat or right after this.
1: Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys.
0: Brew strong! All right, we're back. We're talking Goza with uh, Foul Allen. I wanted to tell you, if you are uh, looking to brew some Goza, you might check out uh, our good friends at Brew Chatter, Uh, Josh and RJ. They have all sorts of great. Uh Goza brewing ingredients, everything from the bacteria to the malt to the fruit to whatever you want to do. They've got it and the knowledge to help you brew some excellent beers. So check them out. Brewchatter.com. They're up there near uh, Reno and Sparks, Nevada. Uh, great little place. I was just up there for Big Brew Day. Uh, the oh. AHA Big Brew Day and uh, had a wonderful time. I I just they had a chair for me. I sat down, I relaxed, I drank lots of beer, ate lots of food. It was, it was pretty wonderful. It was, it was my kind of brew day where everybody, I watched everybody else brew and I just kind of sat around. Is that how you brew now, Val? Is that that what you do? You sit around, watch everybody brew. Uh,
3: I do sit around, but I don't watch everybody (laughs) brew. Other people get to brew, you know, uh, had a funny thing we have a, a brewer here we hired about uh about a, eight months a year ago um good guy named scott came to us from uh ukiah brewing company and the other morning i said to my girlfriend you know i'm going into work and scott's going to teach me how to brew and she said what what wait a minute what i said well you know honestly i don't get to brew on the big system very much mm-hmm. and it it's a complicated system, and." I just need a refresher. So I go in and Scott, you know, walks me through, you mm-hmm. know, how we do things and, you know, which valves are operated by which buttons and it's a funky system. So there are a lot of weird kind of quirks to it, uh, which if you don't brew on it all the time, you forget. All so, right. uh, I got, I got retraining. In fact, I'm in the middle of retraining. I'll be doing it in the next, for the next few weeks. Learning uh, how
0: I got the same thing. You know, I, I, I specified how I wanted this this brewery, uh, this brew plant. I it, it installed it or helped install it. I yeah. helped get the thing started up. I've gone through all this. I know every intimately how every wire connects and every, and yet it's just like yeah. If I had to brew on it, it'd take me a minute, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, you yeah, know, yeah. It's just you know, it's 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 not that simple. But I also believe. It's like, look, I can figure it out. There's, there's not, you know, I know enough about brewing. I know enough about the equipment. Uh, just, just step back and <laughs> give me a moment. I, I, Work I
2: should I, not I'll be it. squirting out of that pipe.
0: I would yeah, <laughs> figure it out. it may take me a, a turn or two, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll get, I get it done. I know what I'm doing. Um,
3: eight-hour brew day to be a 12 hour brew day. So it would I'm be,
0: they'd be good. 18 hour brew days, but you know, eh, uh ph um what uh, you know when you're when you're uh, making your goza do you do you target different phs for different fruits or do you go with one ph uh you know or a fruited versus an unfruited do you uh have any you know targets that you're really shooting for
3: we do have targets it's one ph for all the all the gozas um So we do make a beer that is not a Goza that is kettle soured, uh, tropical hazy sour. Mm. Try and shoot for a higher pH with this beer because I don't want the pH. I don't want the sourness to be quite as intense. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the only uh, beer that we do where we're shooting for a different pH. The Gozas are all trying to get in somewhere above 3.2, but below
0: Mm
3: 3.38, 3.5. So, it's a little bit of a range and we find that once you drop below three, two things begin to get a little more bitey than, than I like. It's pretty intense and anything above three, four and a half, three, five, just doesn't seem intense enough. So Mm -hmm. that you don't kind of quite get the impact and the beer ends up being a little, I guess, flabby is, is kind of Mm -hmm. how I describe it. So three, two, three, three, up to three, four, uh, but somewhere in that range.
0: Yeah. I, I, I told the fullers, I'm just like, oh, don't worry. The plantarum will stop right around, right around three, two. And they were, they were just like, no, 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 no. We, <laughs> this isn't going to stop. It's going to keep going. I'm like, oh, no it'll stop. And, uh, you know, next, next morning it was, you know, like 18 hours later, it was right at three, two. And, uh, or, you know, it's a little bit above three, two. I'm like, perfect yeah um yeah i i I really uh it's kind of it it does have some self-limiting nature to it the bacteria that we're using and uh i I haven't seen any get you know further down than like three one or so
3: yeah three one is getting down there and we we try not to get below three two but we've had a couple sneak by uh Mm -hmm. you know the brewer comes in in the morning they're like bye you know, it's, nice. it's we, our brewer starts pretty early. He starts at two in the morning, mm-hmm. but sometimes he comes in and it's a little low. Now we have the advantage of doing two, we have two kettles. Mm-hmm. So we do two batches at the same time. And when one of them is, you know, gets down below, hopefully the other one is still on, you know, working its mm-hmm. way down and we can boil we can and stop it. it and and then blend.
0: Then blend mm-hmm.
3: um, I don't think we've ever had to post brew house blend uh, anything, but occasionally we do have to, you know, blend the two kettles together to get a, a pH that's in the, you know, the two eight range. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what we're shooting for two eight mm-hmm. three.
0: Okay. And then uh, what about water chemistry?
3: Uh, I always refer to John on all questions <laughs> of water chemistry of any sort.
0: I um, mean, is there, is there like a certain balance you want to shoot for? I, you know, we're adding the salt. Uh, for the goza uh how how is that related to the water chemistry do you you adjust your water chemistry beforehand to to be more uh you know uh sodium uh heavy and less gypsum or do you uh you know i mean how are you trying to balance out your water are you just taking what uh what the city gives you and uh pumping that through
3: Well, uh, unfortunately, there is no city to give us. uh, It's nature. (laughs) Yeah. We have 10 wells on our property. Uh Water in our brewing process comes from our wells. And most of the wells are pretty consistent. We have consistently hard water. Mm
0: -hmm. And
3: I think that makes some nice beer, but it does have a lot of uh, problems associated with it. We get a lot of scaling. Um, Sometimes our pH needs, in fact, all the time we need to acidify the water and the pH uh, the pH of the water to, to get our mash pHs in, in the right range. Um, we don't do anything particularly special for the Gozes as opposed to the other beers. Um, we do acidify the mash and the the water a little bit and are mindful of that. So we get a good, you know, a nice mash runoff. But, uh, after that, we just kind of go with what we got. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, John and I have discussed this, and it makes my head hurt mostly when we talk about water. Uh, I, I, I recognize that water is very important, and that to be a good brewer, you need to understand these sorts of things, oh, and you need to have good water. But there are a lot of uh, variations in water, and you can make good beer with a lot of them. So, I think most people who worry too much about it just are worrying too much if you if you like the way your water tastes when you drink it it's going to make good beer and then when you go to make specific styles like when we make a porter we do a lot more water treatment mm-hmm. but it goes uh, it's pretty forgiving i think mm-hmm. forgiving beer style
0: what do you think john what's what's your your take on uh
2: well in general i agree with the, with foul um the the key the number one reason to adjust brewing water is mash pH. So you dial in your mash pH. There's you know ninety percent of your, your task. From there, you can manipulate sulfate and chloride, you know, to accentuate beer flavors. Uh, in the case of Goza, you know, um, with all sours, I think you're look. Generally, we're looking for a soft sour. So mm-hmm. we don't want a lot of mineral in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause that tends to make it a little more harsh. Um, and we, you are going to be adding, you know, sodium, um, sodium chloride, table salt, rock salt, and, uh, but not, not, you know, horrendous amounts. Um, you are trying to sweeten the malt character to give some more backbone to that sour. Um, and, uh, yeah, generally Uh, you know, you want uh, 50 to say 75 ppm's of calcium. Um, If you have to add, you know, calcium chloride or calcium sulfate to get those levels, um, you're still only adding relatively low amounts of calcium and the chloride and sulfate ions. So when it comes time to add you know, I, have, I don't know how much salt you're adding, about, uh, 2%, something like that of uh, sodium to bump up those numbers. Um, you're, you're really not concerned about the uh, previous chloride and sulfate levels in the water.
0: There you go. All right. Um, we need to take one more short break. And uh, if you're listening live uh you can always ask uh, questions just put them in the uh, in the comment section there and uh and and catch those and and uh you can ask your questions that way or uh you know you can always send them in to bruce strong at the network.com and we'll get those uh questions for you in the future like uh in the next show who knows uh so let's do this we'll take a short break and when we come back i want to also ask uh, foul about the amounts of salt and hops We'll be back right after this.
1: Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer.
0: This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking uh, Goza with uh, Val Allen of uh, Anderson Valley Brewing Company. And uh, before the break, we we're talking about, uh, you know, water adjustments for uh, Goza. One question and one thing that always gets me uh, is coriander and salt. Traditionally, Goza, I, I, you know, Goza, one of the very first guys to be brewing Goza commercially in the United States was Jeff Griffith of, uh, I can't remember what the brewery was then. And then he was on to Fate Brewing great guy and he would brew goza after goza after goza and he'd send them to me or i'd be out there and we'd taste these things and make lots of adjustments and he'd get every goza he could find from other countries and he really dialed it in really fantastic he makes a tequila goza tequila barrel aged goza out of this world to die for anyways um, and one of the things that we're always working on was the amount of salt, and the amount of coriander. And I find a lot of breweries will do a whole bunch of salt and a whole bunch of coriander because it's America and if doing bad. a little, it's it's good to do a lot. And so <laughs> oh, uh I I don't like that. I think that there needs to be a balance and it needs to be kind of a subtle background thing. If you taste salt, uh, you've probably gone too far. Uh, what's your take on this, and what's a good starting point for people to just, you know, take a shot at uh, at brewing a good goza at home?
3: I think you are one hundred percent correct that you know subtlety, a light hand in almost everything for brewing. I mean, our job as brewers is to make a beverage that you want to have another one of Mm -hmm. and that's kind of my at our brewery that's our guideline if no matter what the beer is you serve it in whatever glass size but if at the bottom of that glass you don't think that was good i'd have another one of those or you know i'll have another one of those after a while if we don't think that you missed your mark i think Mm -hmm. so a beer that has too much salt or too much coriander or you know too much sour Mm -hmm. If you get halfway through the glass and you think I want something else, that brewer missed their mark, in my opinion. I mean, those are interesting beers sometimes. But as a professional brewer, you want people to have more than one. So you have to be even handed. And we use a little bit of coriander in all our gozas, but you can't really tell. It's there in the background. It's underneath. I think it's a supporting player. And I think that's often... Important in a lot of the ingredients that you use. You want you want them to support the flavors of the yeast, the malt, and for some beers the hops. Mm -hmm. And you know those players take you know front center stage at different times, but you don't want a beer that's all hops with Mm -hmm. no malt backbone. You don't Mm -hmm. want a beer that has no hops at all. You know at least I don't. And so you got to be even handed. Um, We. Of course, you made the perfect analogy that, you know, when in America, inevitably, someone is going to want to put it, make it so salty, it tastes like, you know, blood or salt shaker. And so when we got to that point, there was a lot of discussion. We do a lot of our beers, we design them in, uh, in a group in a team. And so we're sitting around discussing how much salt and, you know, one guy's like, I hate salt, I don't want any. And another person was like, I think it should be like, you know, crazy salty because that we really want it to be like Goza salt. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and we couldn't come to a conclusion. And I had my own opinion and, and I didn't want to kind of force it on everybody. Uh, ultimately, my opinion was right, of course, but you know, <laughs> but but I thought it should be, you know, you know subtly done. Mm-hmm. And we ended up using more than I probably would have, but what we did was we made up, I think, five samples from no salt to crazy salt. Mm -hmm. And on a Friday, we set them all up in front of our pub, and everybody who came in had to try all five samples and mark which one they liked the best. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: we decided the one that got the most votes would be where we put it. And shockingly, it was right in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) uh, your bell curve. And so we came up with uh, 3.4 grams per gallon. Uh, mm, of salt uh-huh. and I love mixing, you know, metric with, with American, you get right. <laughs> gallon. I can let you do that calculation at home. Um, and that's kind of what we decided was a good amount. And so right. that's, that's where we go. And that you taste the salt in Argozas, but it isn't a beer that you'd grab and you think, Whoa, salty. Right.
0: It, right.
3: it comes more in a gentle salinity, a kind of mineral mm-hmm. quality.
2: Yeah. That's a little less than one pound per barrel.
0: Yeah. You go, John, with the quick calculation, um,
3: I have it all calculated out here somewhere. uh,
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and where can people get the Goza book?
3: Um, it's all over online and of course they can always email me and uh, I'll send you one for a reasonable price. Um, I believe the Brewers association uh, who published it, um, I like to go to bookfinder.com for all my books because they're an aggregate for uh, smaller uh, used and new bookstores. And oh, uh-huh. bookfinder.com will put you in touch with whoever. They also now aggregate in Amazon, who I'm not a fan of. Uh, so, you know, you can buy from them if you want to, but you should really be supporting a local small uh, bookstore somewhere, even there if it's in go. England. There you
0: go. All right. Thanks. Uh one last question uh before we go has to do with coriander so one of the things i learned about coriander (laughs) from the distilling side of things um uh is that um and actually uh, what kind of got me on this road was at fuller's uh, we went to Sipsmith, which is the distillery that makes gin in, in like the fuller's parking lot right and um we needed some coriander because, and uh, they were talking about uh, the different kinds of coriander. And one of the things they use is really small seed coriander and whatever that is, it has a much greater lemon character to it, Mm -hmm. citrus character versus kind of the peppery earthy kind of thing that you think of coriander. Uh, In in the U S we think more of that and the the larger seeds tend to be more like that. And the smaller, the seed, the more lemony citrusy they are. Uh, Are you paying attention to your, your coriander supply and which one you use? And uh, you know, I, I've uh, I ended up buying like all the coriander I could get from different suppliers and then, you know, kind of figuring out which one was the, the, the most lemony for our gins. So uh, I have some excess coriander if you ever need some.
3: <laughs> well, we, you know, again, we don't put a lot in there because I didn't want it to be a feature of the beer. I mm-hmm. wanted it to be a supporting player. And I, we went through some different varieties and I don't remember the one we ultimately selected. But it was one that had a lot of that kind of like you say a lemony mm-hmm. note, and I mm-hmm. thought that supported the sourness nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't like coriander, um, and for me, there's this kind of in the in the stuff you get in the in the US is a floral character that I don't like as much.
0: Some um, people say know, soapy
3: for me, and so I wanted to avoid that. So we used one that gave you a little more of that lemon note. And there are lots of varieties, um, and I was surprised at how much there was. And initially, we wanted to get something that you know was a European variety, uh, mm-hmm. because you know Goza came from the continent, and I think ultimately we went with one that came from India. So, uh, you know, there you go. Flavor, nice.
0: excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, joining us, Val. Uh, and you're able to stick around for a, for a Q&A show as well? Yep, absolutely. Right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to wrap this show up. And if you're listening live, stay tuned. We're going to have another uh, Bruce Strong episode right after this where we're going to do some Q&A and some, uh, some barrel questions that John has. Uh, and we'll do all that with our good friend, foul Allen, who's graciously agreed to, to stick around with us. We're gonna take a short break. This is an opportunity to go, uh, pee or, uh, get yourself a beer, whatever, whatever that might be. Uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, it's going to be, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before you, before you get the next episode. Uh, but until then, everybody, brew strong. Brew strong.